Play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. This is Stanley Fritz, and I am the union leader of the strippers of Sin City, of Giggles, and of Wiggles. And that's right, my ladies are going you on wish. strike. Stanley, you I- know what? Hold on, stop hating. Where's my music? There we go. Strippers are going on strike right now, standing up for their stripper rights. We are tired of just getting dollar bills. We also want minimum wage. Strippers are going to throw it in a circle, but for only a fair wage, health insurance, and the respect they deserve. There's no reason that star tenders, a.k.a. bartenders, are getting more money than strippers. Common, <laughs> tell them. Die, the spirit is revisiting us. Showing living, living in us. Resistance is us. All right, guys, what up? Stanley, so you're advocating for strippers. It's not just me. Strippers are going on strike in New York. I was reading about that. That is crazy. (laughs) Welcome to Let Your Voice Be Heard. But the thing is, they make a lot of money. (laughs) No, 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 no. Strippers do not get paid a minimum wage. They're like like, um, tip workers. They only get paid off tips. They don't even, but they don't even get the minimum wage for tip workers, which I think is five dollars an hour now. They don't even get that. They only get paid in singles or whatever someone throws at them. But I mean, what do they get paid on average? Meanwhile, star tenders get a minimum wage. But anyways, guys, we will save that for the news roundup. There is obviously a lot of passion around Giggles, Diamond, and Shantice, and all the stripper women of the world. And I'm glad you share that passion, Stanley. I, I have a deep love for strippers, and I will explain why later. But guys, this is Let Your Voice Be Heard on any I didn't know that. that who, what man doesn't like strippers? W- I know a lot of men that don't like strippers or strip clubs. No, you don't. You didn't lie to you. No one goes, no, none of the guys in your church hate strippers, Lena. Anyways, this is Let Your Voice Be Heard. Anyway. What's your stripper name? My stripper name? Mandingo Stan. Oh, my God. <laughs> it took him half a second to think of that. Listen, name. I, you by know, the way. it was tough. Anyways, Listen, guys, beloved. That's right. Let's get back on topic, guys. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in for the first time, this is Stanley Fritz. I am here with Selena Hill and, of course, Alyssa Fuchs, our other host, Jackie. I am now engaged. Cohen is a loser, and she is also in Paris, which means she's a bigger loser, and she has half of a rock on her finger, so she's an even bigger loser. Just like, speaking of half a rock on your finger and strippers, Cardi B got engaged. Yeah, I saw Cardi B the other night. Right, you were at that concert, Powerhouse. We got to stop jumping to the news roundup so soon. No, no, I just wanted to say congratulations to Jackie and Cardi B. That's all I wanted to say really quickly. Thank you, Stanley. Yes, this is Let Your Voice Be Heard, Uh where apparently Stanley uh, starts the show talking about strippers, his new love or hobby. I don't know. I am the union organizer. Right. Okay, gotcha. Um, I am Selena Hill on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me at Miss Selena Hill. Miss is spelled with an M-S. Of course, this is Let Your Voice Be Heard, where we talk about foreign policy, political issues, and social justice. Alyssa, my co-host, What's is up? here. What's hey, up? Alyssa. Um, I'm Alyssa Fuchs. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Alyssa Fuchs. That's Alyssa with an I or at Alyssa Fuchs on Twitter. Um, or you can leave a comment on the Politically Preposterous fan page. That's facebook.com slash Politically Preposterous or at Poll Preposterous on Twitter. Um, so, yeah, I'm awake. <laughs> I'm here. You're more alive than me right and now. And I was out till 3 in the morning. Wow. Well, well, you know, kudos to you, Alyssa, for all that high energy. All right, guys, so we have a great show lined up. We're going to start the show talking about the Civil War in the GOP. We have a very special guest calling in. It's not often enough that we get to hear from our conservative friends, our conservative brothers and sisters on the right. Yeah, because so usually we, will. we chase them off or call them Uncle Tom's. Yeah, well, I mean, that <laughs> depends. We've had this conversation. There is clearly a difference between um, conservative policy and ideology that is based in some 
some kind of reason and then just like dog whistle politics like we're seeing in the Virginia governor's race. We should talk about that later. Absolutely. So we'll have Carrie Sheffield calling in. She is a political um, analyst. She also is the founder of Bold TV. She'll be calling in a few more moments. We will also be talking about the opioid crisis later on. We know that uh, President Trump has just declared this a public health emergency. So we'll talk about his proposal. Wait, so we're not allowed to play the song Molly Percocet? No, we're definitely playing (laughs) Mask Off by Future. (laughs) I just, your chick with some Gucci flip flops. Wrong song. Wrong Wrong song. Listen. Molly Percocet. Mask off. Okay, perfect. Yeah, but of course, we don't recommend doing drugs, you know, because you might get addicted and then be a victim in the opioid crisis. So Great segue, Alyssa. Um, And then last but not least, Alyssa will be giving us a quickie on the House budget bill that passed. Alyssa? Uh, Yeah, so basically, I'm going to break down a little bit about the budget and the tax bill. Um, It actually sort of ties into what we're talking about with the Republican Civil War uh, because there's really like two factions of Republicans um, in terms of this budget bill um, and whether or not, you know, they want to cut spending and changes to 401ks and, um, you know, this uh, salt tax. And so there's lots of different uh, you know, ins and outs of the budget. <laughs> I know I sound like a politician, the ins and the outs. And, um, and so, you know, the this war uh, in the civil, uh, the civil war in the GOP uh, that we're going to talk about during the first segment is going to directly sort of tie in uh, to what we're going to see with the budget that I'm going to talk about in the last segment. Absolutely, guys. And of course, if you want to let your voice be heard, you can call in at 212-650-69. Zero three. You can also tweet us at be heard underscore radio. Look at you getting better at being interrupted. Uh, no, I, I just, see you, I, beloved. But the thing is, I just think about our listeners. Like, how do they? How does that translate to them? It's be heard, be heard underscore radio. How does your Cosby shirt translate to our <laughs> listeners on Facebook Live? Anyway, Stanley. All right, so we're gonna go to a quick. How's break. your Harvey Wiener suit translate? Ooh, Ooh. get it. a Cosby shirt. So I have money. I don't care. <laughs> I'm just kidding with you. <laughs> anyway, no, good one, Alyssa. Thanks for having my back, girl. So anyway, we're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere when we come back. We're talking about the Civil War and the GOP. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM. WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz. I'm here with Selena Hill and Alyssa Fuchs. Jackie's still in Powee, being engaged and living her best life. Shout out to Ben. And we are here getting ready to talk to you about all of the amazing things happening throughout the week. And when I say amazing, I mean depressing. Selena, (laughs) what's going on with the Civil War? Yeah, Absolutely, guys. So... Um, as Stanley just mentioned, there have been a lot of disheartening things ever since Trump decided to run for president and actually got elected. So here's this quote. Listen to this. Reckless, outrageous and undignified behavior has become excused and continenced as telling it like it is when it is actually just reckless, outrageous and undignified. Now, that is a direct quote, not from a Democrat but from Arizona Senator Jeff Flake, who announced on Tuesday that he will not seek a second term. During his dramatic speech on the Senate floor, in addition to calling leadership in the White House reckless, he said that such behavior is a danger to our democracy. Ironically, despite Senator Flake's harsh and public criticism of Trump, he has been a reliable vote for his agenda. He voted for his judicial nominees, his regulatory rollbacks, and the GOP health care plan. 
However, he was facing a serious uphill battle to win his primary election next year against former state, uh, former state Senator Keeley Ward or possibly a to-be-announced Trump-backed challenger. Now, according to Flake, he would have had to compromise his values and his principles in order to win re-election. In response to Senator Flake's dramatic speech, President Trump said, you know what, and I quote, there is great unity in the Republican Party, and the only reason why Senator Flake made these statements is because he has nothing else to say. <laughs> Seriously. Then Donald Trump, without being prompted, tweeted this on Thursday, and I quote, do not underestimate the unity, capital U-N-I-T-Y, just like Latifah spelled it, within the Republican Party. Hmm. Now, Trump is not the only GOP leader trying to downplay the significance of Jeff Blake's retirement speech, insisting that the Republican Party is unified. A number of other senators and congressional leaders have come out saying the same thing. But we all know the truth. There are profound ideological differences within the Republican coalition, which has only become more amplified, more pronounced, and more clear since Donald Trump has been elected president. It's only, though, the thing is, it's only a few senators who have the guts to actually denounce him and his behavior. One other person happens to be Senator Bob Corkett of Tennessee, who has called Trump irresponsible and a dangerous leader. Uh, last week, uh, Senator John McCain and President George W. Bush offered their own critiques of President Trump and Trumpism. Um, and also, we have seen that uh, Steve Bannon, the former White House chief strategist, has, re uh, has launched a campaign, a full-out crusade against primary challengers, against U uh, GOP senator incumbents. So he is uh, actively trying to recruit more challengers to get the establishment GOPers out of there in 2018. Huh? But don't get me wrong, the establishment is fighting back. They also are planning a series of strikes against Bannon and his attacks. Now, I say all of that to basically frame what I would say is, is a civil war. I mean, it's, it's, I, we see it. Uh, it's something that's been happening for months now, and I think that it's only getting worse. Now, I, we also have a very special guest on the line, one of my favorite conservative friends, Carrie Sheffield. She is a writer, political analyst, and the founder of the new media startup group, Bold TV. She is also a former editorial writer for the New York, for the Washington Times, almost said New York Times, oops, and a reporter for Politico and The Hill. On top of that, she earned a master's degree in public policy from Harvard University. Welcome to Let Your Voice Be Heard, Carrie. Hey, Selena. Good morning. Great to be here. How are you doing? We are hey, doing morning. well. Alyssa's here, and so is Stanley. So Hi, Carrie. Oh, hey, Stanley. Hey, Alyssa. Great to meet you. Hey, and Stanley, great to talk to you again. Absolutely. Stanley, Stanley and Selena are both repeat guests and favorites on Bold, so good to talk to you guys. It's a family affair today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is a family affair. So, Carrie, you know, I pretty much laid out the framework of something that I would say is clearly a civil war within the Republican Party. How would you describe these infractions and this infighting? Uh, democracy. That's how I would describe it. First of all... Um, and also, let me note as a sidebar, when y'all are talking about the civil war within the Democratic Party, I'd love to come back to that, too. Um, 
but I, we had that conversation already, Sherry, a couple weeks ago, Carrie. unfortunately. Um, yeah, no, Carrie, that's what I said. Um, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. Um, we had that conversation. You can go back and listen to it. It's on our archive. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I'm saying a conservative, though, to talk about it. As in, did you have a conservative on the show for that? No, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. But um, so in terms of the Republican Party, so, well, um, I was never Trump last year, and I don't regret being never Trump, but I also see what's happening in terms of just the, if you read the book that I would recommend to everyone to understand what's happened uh, sociologically uh, with, with the Republican Party and conservative movement um, is a book called Coming Apart by Charles Murray, The State of White America. And it's, it's brilliant. It lays out exactly what happened here because basically we had a cultural collapse uh, within white America. And he lays out how that happened, uh, and it's just, it, the insights are brilliant. But one thing that he, uh, you know, just illustrates in terms of the cultural and the behavioral collapse of blue-collar rural America in terms of the behavior, um, I believe that the party elders of the Republican Party did not, the quote-unquote establishment, did not do enough um, to stop that from happening. And so in some respects, they're getting, they're reaping what they sowed. Like, they didn't create institutions like media outlets, um, like just an ability to push back within the party without, uh, you know, just alienating major swaths of the electorate. So the culture that they cultivated was really focused on just winning within swing states rather than long-term partnerships uh, among all different types of people from different types of backgrounds. Just really focused more on winning rather than bringing people together. So against all that backdrop, I, I understand why this has happened. And I also did not want Trump. I wanted somebody else. My favorite within the ones who had declared was uh, Governor Scott Walker. I'm a big fan of Scott Walker. Um, I also love Mitt Romney and I love John Huntsman, but they weren't running in 2016. I wish that Romney would have done an independent in 16, but I think he would have caused even more schisms and probably would have thrown it to Hillary. So Right. You, you know what, Carrie? And it sounds like, you know, you said a lot there. And we thank you so much for just giving us all that background information. Uh, what it sounds like to me, and maybe you would agree with this, is that, you know, there's a lot of anger. Right. And it sounds like what you were saying, the Republican Party, the establishment weren't strategically reaching or speaking for their electorate. Instead, they were just focused on trying to win elections, uh, which they've been doing. But now there is a, a lot of outrage uh, that has festered within this sector, excuse me, within this party, and that has resulted in sectors branching off and trying to basically overtake the establishment. That's my read of how this, of the civil war within the Republican Party. I want to throw it to uh, you guys. Stanley? So Alyssa had a hand first, so I'm going to give it to her. I appreciate that. Um so, you know, to me, it's it's like a long time coming because the Republican Party has always been the big tent and they've wanted to be the big tent. They've even called themselves the big tent party. And so you've constantly had all these different factions of people that have very, very different ideologies, number one, and occupy very, very different economic spaces. So you, within the Republican Party, you have your Tea Party type people. You have people that consider themselves libertarians, like your Rand Paul people. You have people that consider themselves hawks and 
neocons like your John McCain's. Um, you have moderates like Mitt Romney and John Huntsman. Um, you know, obviously, the, the Affordable Care Act was originally a Mitt Romney plan that came from the Heritage Foundation, but we're not relitigating that today. Um, and then you also have your nationalist white supremacist uh, folks. Um, and all of these different, fa- you know, people, oh, and I can't leave out, you have your very rich, wealthy, well-to-do, white-collar people that, um, you know, work in finance or, you know, make a lot of money, you're millionaires and you're billionaires. Um, so you have all these people that don't necessarily occupy the same economic space, right? Like the person, the blue-collar worker in Kentucky does not occupy the same economic space as the Wall Street person um, who makes a million dollars a year who wants a tax cut um, and works for Goldman Sachs. And so you have all these different people, and they're all trying to be in the same party. um, And at some point, that's going to stop working. And that's really what I see is going on, is that we finally reached this point where all these different factions in the Republican Party are not able to move forward together, and that's why the party's coming apart at, at the seams. Carrie, I want to get I want to get Carrie's voice back in here because you know you know Alyssa gave a great break, breakdown of how the Republican Party uh, for decades has been an umbrella for a racist. number. <laughs> hold on, Stanley. A number of people like racists. Um, Let's be clear yeah, about no, that. Okay, there are racists. No, 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 hold on, St- Stanley. What are you saying? What are you saying yeah, right now, Stanley? Like the point. Then Alyssa, I think Alyssa gave a really great back background on that. Okay. But I think the piece that we cannot ignore is that since at least the Johnson administration, the Republican Party, sorry, the Nixon administration, the Republican Party has been playing this game of like flirting with very fringe racist groups and like spitting out rhetoric that can attract that base to continue to, continue to get white voters. And during that time, they've also supported policies that hurt these people. And between that and then propaganda outlets like Fox News and Breitbart and then the way that they behaved around Obama, what you're seeing happening now is nothing but the chickens coming home to roost. Okay, so basically two assessments here. Stanley says it's racism. I mean, I would still agree. No, you agree, but you're just adding that component. You're saying that's a heavy component. Yeah. Carrie, how much would you say um, the fact that the Republican Party has for decades been this umbrella for people of different classes, how much has that been uh, brought into play here as well as racism? Sure. So, yes, you guys covered a lot of ground. Uh, so I agree, Alyssa, in terms of the economic diversity of the, the Big Tent GOP strategy in terms of uh, – it, it was actually this really strange Fed fellowship that happened in the 80s. People who work on Wall Street coalesce with people who are pro-life. Um, and the big theme of that is, is people who are, you know, seeking freedom, freedom being pro-life. Uh, somehow they – and some, it's, a, it's almost like a Frankenstein thing that they melded together. Um, but as far as, like, the blue collar, like you said, someone from Kentucky, maybe a minor in West Virginia, uh, on the same team as a Wall Street uh, billionaire or a very successful finance person, uh, there was definitely a coming apart as far as the issue of immigration. And I think that was the biggest clincher for Jeff Flake's state was that Jeff Flake was very much more pro-open borders, pro-immigration. And that was the signature keystone issue for Trump in 2016. And uh, in looking at, I call them the the quote-unquote Chamber of Commerce Republicans. A a Chamber of Commerce Republican tends to be very pro-immigration because they like low-skilled labor. labor. They like that uh, they can pay them low low wages to compete uh, with Americans. And so a lot of the blue-collar white rural Americans said, hey, Time out. That's not okay. This immigrant labor is driving down my wages. 
I'm not okay with that, Mr. Chamber of Commerce Republican, and there are more of us than there are of you. So I think that, and you mentioned, Selena, that, you know, Jeff Flake voted with the president most of the time, um, but I think the signature departure was immigration, and I think that that's going to define the Republican Party for a long time moving forward. Uh, and in terms of uh, the point that you mentioned, family on race, um, I think when you, we had you on, you were with Emily Akins from the Cato Institute, uh, most recently on Bold. And Emily, I would recommend her research because what she did, she, she's brilliant. She's got a PhD uh, in polling from UCLA. She's libertarian. She works for the Cato Institute. And she dug into the motivations of the Trump voters. And she put them really into five major buckets, uh, the five types of Trump voters. And she did identify, she said it was about 2% uh, of people who she called as just basically totally disaffected, disgruntled, angry about uh, just everything, feeling like they actually are very nihilistic. And they voted for Trump because they just, they feel like they are, uh, they were just looking for a place to express their nihilism. So I do think that, yes, there there is a component of some people who voted for Trump who have racial animus, unfortunately, but overall, the vast majority of Trump voters were, were concerned about other things, including the fact that, like, Jeff, Jeff Lake himself voted with the president 90% of the time. So clearly, uh, if you're saying that Jeff Lake was sort of this, this model of what a Republican should be, he was someone who was supporting a conservative or whatever Republican agenda by far um, more than half the time. Also, one other point to note about Jeff Flake, I don't think he made his resignation because of, obviously, uh, he, he didn't do it for some grand moral bargain. It was just that I think he doesn't like Trump's style, because clearly, clearly on policy, he's there. Um, and also, I would note, I, I've known Jeff Flake for a long time. I, I, I respect him a lot, actually. Um, he's, he's Mormon. My family's Mormon. And I reported on him when he was in the House. And one thing he said when he was in the House was that he promised that he would not run above a certain number of terms. I believe it was two. I don't remember exactly, but maybe it was three. But anyway, he promised and put that promise to the voters, and then he broke that promise. And I said, you're breaking your promise. Like, this is, is this not something morally that you said to the voters that you're now breaking? And, you know, he had his politician response. So nothing is sacred as far as I'm concerned in politics. All right, Carrie, thank you so much for that. Unfortunately, we do have to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere, Carrie. We have some responses to everything you just said here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. We'll be right back. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. My name is Selena Hill. I'm here with my two co-hosts, Stanley Fritz and Alyssa Fuchs. We have a very special guest on the line. Her name is Carrie Sheffield. She is the founder of the new media startup, Bold TV. Check that out on Facebook, facebook.com slash Bold TV. And you'll probably see a lot of clips of me and some of Stanley on the show. So where we left off, uh, Carrie was just talking about uh, the, the infractions, the infighting, what I call the civil war in the Republican Party. And I know Alyssa wanted to chime in on one particular issue, immigration. Yeah, so, um, Carrie, I mean, the, the immigration issue, as you bring it up, is an interesting one because, um, you know, you, you said that you think, like, Jeff Flake was sort of out of touch because he's a more pro-globalist and pro-immigration. And, and I get that point. But here's where I wanted to sort of press you, which is I have a lot of friends that are hardcore libertarians, like capital L, 
all libertarians that also are registered Republicans. And as libertarians, big L libertarians, they believe in open borders, completely open borders. In fact, they will go as far as to say that it's not the government's job to interject in free market capitalism by creating arbitrary borders that um, dictate the free movement of goods and services. And that, in fact, the true conservative position is to be in favor of immigration and is to be in favor of open borders. So how does that position fit in with the idea that, you know, what you're saying is that these people who consider themselves conservatives say we want immigration immigrants out. Um, how, how is that conservative? And what would you say to these libertarians who say that's not conservative? Sure, Alyssa, that's a great point. And uh, yes, I have tons of libertarian friends. My co-host yesterday or on Friday for Bold, my sub, uh, he works for Reason Magazine, which is the voice of the libertarians online. And I think the the response for the quote unquote law and order conservatives on the immigration issue is that you know if if the world was just one borderless place, that would just be utter chaos. That uh, and this is where I think pure libertarianism gets it wrong because, for example, if you look in countries where there is no government, like libertarians are always saying the government is theft, that taxation is theft, that if if there was no government, then why don't we have utopia in countries that have no government? And that's clearly not the case. Um, we look at in instances, for example, in the Middle East or in Sub-Saharan Africa, where government's in chaos, where government does not function, and we don't want a place like that. Uh, and then in terms of the issue of economic competition, uh, this is something that I've been wrestling a lot with because I do come from a very pro-free market perspective, and I actually did work at Goldman Sachs. And I uh, was always very, very pro-immigration in all circumstances. And I've had to think about this a lot because, you know, as I've been talking to Trump voters, and I have a lot of people in my family who voted for Trump, and seeing how, for them, this it really gets to the heart of sovereignty, of what a country is for. And, and I think a libertarian would agree that the function of government is to provide defense, common defense, that is one line item that libertarians are generally willing to get behind, uh, even though they don't like wars. But uh, so when you're thinking about contract enforcement and also uh, a lot of the low-skilled immigrants who come in, they actually end up taking more in safety net benefits from the American taxpayers than they're putting into the system. And I would differentiate between a low-skilled immigrant and a high-skilled immigrant. I think that too often they get lumped in together where you have people who come in and the wages they're earning are actually, uh, and the taxes paid end up being less than the benefits they're getting in return. Uh, whereas a high-skilled immigrant who is coming maybe on a tech visa or something like that, they are going to be a net contributor. That was another concern that I think a libertarian would at least understand that we don't want to be subsidizing low-skilled immigrants who are coming here and then getting subsidized by the American taxpayer. So, Carrie, I just want to push back a little bit because you said that these, um, quote-unquote, low um, low-skill, um, undocumented people coming into the country are taking up more than tax, are taking up resources. I'm paraphrasing, but are taking up resources that can be going to people who um, tend to be Trump supporters and other and regular Americans, quote unquote. But we know that like undocumented people, even without actually having to pay taxes every single year, pay pay over forty-five million dollars in taxes on average because of all the money they pump back into the economy. And we also know that they're actually not taking low-wage jobs from people, and actually the jobs that they're taking tend to be off of the books and if you and in places where they have actually tried to enforce this what they have seen happen is that those quote-unquote low-wage jobs or jobs that other people would want they stay empty because no one wants to do that kind of work and especially for those wages 
Right, and Carrie, just a really quickly, did you want to respond to that? Uh, sure, yeah. I, I think what I'm saying response is that, well, I think because we also have a large entitlement society where we discourage work as well, there's uh, an economist named Casey Mulligan at the University of Chicago who has done great analysis of this, that basically uh, we discourage people, American citizens, from working. And part of why the unskilled uh, uh, immigrants who are here without documentation and are here illegally, they, uh, they are, don't have access to safety net things, except that they do have access to education. The Supreme Court ruled that, that they do have access to public education subsidized by the American taxpayer. Um, so in some respects, they, over time, will accumulate benefits when they have children here, uh, when they, uh, you know, become a citizen or they get a green card eventually. So I don't think that, I think a conservative would say, and a libertarian would say that uh, we're incentivizing the Americans to not take the jobs in part because we just, we discourage work um, through our own programs that have become entitlements rather than just the safety net programs. Carrie, I got to jump in again. I'm sorry. I, I just really disagree with this with this idea that we discourage work here. Most people who are getting any kind of benefits from the government, if you're a single person, have to be making $11,000 a year or less. If you're a family of four, $20,000 a year or less. With those salaries, you cannot afford to live anywhere independently. And the benefits that you do get, because I have once received benefits from the government, do not discourage work, but they do make it harder to get back on your feet because the only way you can get them is if you're completely destitute. And if you get a job that begins to pay a little bit because a lot of these jobs are low paying, like minimum wage jobs, they will cut off your funding. And it puts people in a situation where the only thing they can do is leave their jobs or lie about it. So now if we raise the wages or if we provided more support that was that was smart and intuitive towards the work and the skills that people needed, we wouldn't be in this situation. But I think that's more of an issue that Republicans would push to hurt working class people than to help them. Selena? Well, you know, Stanley, and I'm really glad that, you you know, you pushed back and we did get a chance to talk about immigration. The reason being, you know, just to get back on topic here, Jeff Flake was very pro-immigration. You know, he grew up here. You probably know better than me. He grew up on a farm and he, um, he actually used the skill of undocumented workers, a thing that a lot of people, a lot of Americans uh, take advantage of. And he said that he actually grew a respect for undocumented people. And that is one of the um, that is one of the things that he vehemently disagreed upon when it comes to the Republican Party and some of the leadership there. So, you know, just to get back on topic here, you know, not everybody. Not everybody has that has an approach where they where they just feel like undocumented people are hurting the country. I mean, even people like Donald Trump and other wealthy Americans take advantage of these skilled workers and the fact that they're coming here. So and I think that we need to acknowledge that. I mean, but yeah, I think this is part of the issue about why there's such a big rift in the Republican Party, because as I started off saying, you know, there are multiple issues um, where Republicans don't agree. And there, I mean, like, look, I'll give you a perfect example. Um, and just as an aside, I know we sort to like divert off into talking about policy a little and sort of having a debate uh, like I'll put it out there I'd love to have that debate during another segment and have Carrie come back so we can talk about that because um, I know like we wanted to come back to the actual rift but going back to what I was saying the the like here's a perfect example is the the failure to repeal Obamacare for eight years Republicans were saying they were going to repeal Obamacare they passed f- 44 mock repeal bills while Obama was president, knowing he was never going to sign any one of them. And then when they finally won and they controlled 
the House and they control the Senate and Donald Trump is the president. Obviously, they have a Republican in office where it should be easy for them to repeal Obamacare, especially after they've practiced doing it 45 plus times. Um <laughs> They can't do it. And why can't they do it? Because you have, on one hand, people like Rand Paul who say, we have to scrap this all together. The government's spending too much money. You know, he's got his libertarian perspective. Um, on the other hand, you have Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, moderates who say, my constituents are seeing benefits from Obamacare and it needs to be fixed because it's not perfect, which even I'll acknowledge. Um, but we shouldn't scrap it all together. And what ends up happening? They try three or four times and they can't do it and it collapses. And this is exactly what is going on in the Republican Party. And to make it worse, I just want to add into this piece, Alyssa, because I think you said pretty much all of it, is that during the whole time Obama was president, they kept saying they could do something better and faster. And then the, the only reason they don't like the actual bill is because Obama proposed it. So they created these fake proxy wars and created this energy around these things, and now that they can't live with their bases pissed off. Yeah, but um, okay, I want to get Carrie's response to what Alyssa was saying about that infighting um, there. And, and you gave a perfect example, the Affordable Care Act. Carrie? Sure. So in terms of the, yes, I, I was very disappointed. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of the anger bubble up against the quote-unquote establishment. Um, John McCain, I was severely disappointed by what he did. I mean, he campaigned repeatedly against Obamacare, and then he voted to support it. And I think that's why you see a lot of people who are very frustrated with him and also with people like Senator Jeff Blake. I know he didn't, but I know he did vote to support uh, repealing replacing it, but uh, I think that's part of why you saw Roy Moore's primary victory. I don't endorse a lot of things that he has said, but I understand what the people are saying by signifying, hey, Mitch McConnell. And, and in fact, uh, his opponent actually has Trump's endorsement, but uh, Mitch McConnell, it was like the kiss of death, though, uh, for the guy who was running against Roy Moore as well. So I think people uh, in the Republican Party uh, base are incredibly frustrated exactly with what you described, Alyssa, because they're saying, look, hey, we put you guys in, in office and you're not delivering here. Uh, and so people are feeling very uh, disgruntled because they feel like, look, we, we won all of these branches of government and we're not delivering so uh, you know that's that's a really good point and the, one of the reasons that you know the republicans won so many branches of government was because of the things that donald trump was saying while he was campaigning and besides him being a racist horrible human being he said that he thought that we should get universal health care and he promised that in his health care plan that everyone would be covered and then what the base got to see over the last eight months is a republican party that was pushing um health care policy that was actually going to hurt them and you know and then the same thing when he said that he was going to help with the opioid crisis, which we're going to talk about later. One of the first things he and the Republican Party did was went to go cut funding from the Drug Administration, the Drug and Health Administration that was going to help with that issue. So, like, the question I have for you is, we talked about some of the different ideologies facing the, the Republican Party, but could it just be a case of maybe the Republican establishment is not there on the issues with the people that actually go out and vote for them? Well, I think that's part of why you see people like Steve Bannon saying, we're going to have a better match here. Uh, and that's why Trump won, was because people were so upset. They didn't feel like the Republican establishment was sufficiently pushing back against the progressive agenda. Um, in terms of the argument about health care, the Heritage Plan and the Romney Plan were very, very different from what passed in Obamacare. And in fact, Romney even said in 2012, this, what I said, was happening at the state level, whereas Obamacare is a federal program. What the Republicans just tried to pass that John McCain voted against was trying to, again, make it a state program, put Medicaid back to the states, 
make this a block grant thing because, unfortunately, Obamacare has collapsed. I am a victim of Obamacare. I literally lost my doctor. When Obama promised, if you like your doctor, you can keep him or her, that was a lie. That was a big lie, and a lot of people are very frustrated, and they're, they're open to something else, but unfortunately, the Republican I, – I, and Rand Paul, the same thing. He campaigned against uh, Obamacare, and yet he voted to support it. So I think that's why a lot of people are very frustrated. It's amazing you said they're frustrated when over 60% of Americans support the Affordable Care Act, and there was so much mobilization to protect it. And some people did lose their doctors, unfortunately, but over 30 million people got access to affordable health insurance. I'll take it. I was one of them. Me too. I'm, an, I'm another person. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't have health insurance if it wasn't for Obamacare. Yeah. I, I, thanks, actually, my yep, premiums have gone down. I should just put that out Hell, there. Hell, thanks Heritage Foundation for the idea. <laughs> no, no. no I mean, there are, I mean yeah. we, we can talk about that more. There are problems with Obamacare that need to be fixed, yeah. but that's another their show yeah. yeah no but i mean and unfortunately we do have to bring this conversation to a close but you know we did cover a lot of ground here carrie and you know you as someone who is part of the uh republican party you uh call yourself conservative where is this party going and who does it even belong to i mean and i'll just give some perspective really quickly because it feels like it's a, a battle between the establishment and the trumpers right and those who support trumpism and it feels like trumpism is what is winning right now. So I want to get Carrie's take on that comment and then see what where she thinks the party is going. Could I just add one more piece to that? Because it seems like they're there on most of the issues. What's the difference? Between the factions? Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think immigration and style, tone. I do think that, I mean, I agree with this, like that the president is out of bounds a lot of times but at the same time, I understand. I've actually said this, and uh, a lot of people uh, don't like it, um, but I, I actually in some ways see Donald Trump as a modern-day Winston Churchill, because if you see Winston Churchill's comments, Winston Churchill said a lot of really offensive comments that were xenophobic, sexist, really like awful statements, yet at the end of the day, on the big thing that mattered, which was pushing back against national socialism, because that's what Nazism stands for, national socialism, he got it right. So I think that that's why a lot of people are willing to forgive some of the more uh, just egregious, uh, off-putting, offensive, horrible things that Trump says, because they think that on the big thing, he's going to get it right. I'm just, no. As far as Winston Churchill, just no, Carrie. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Selena. I, I mean, um, <laughs> I, I mean, listen. I, you know, I don't know. Just to answer your question, Selena, I, I don't think that this weird, funky marriage between all these different people um, in the Republican Party can last. Um, and you know. Listen, in terms of just to give you some contrast, like in terms of the Democrats, I think the biggest issue that the Democrats are having is people that want to be, you know, the moderate Democrats, um, sort of the neoliberal types versus people on the far left who are sort of fed up with that and want a more progressive sort of FDR thing. I don't think that's the same as what's going on in the Republican Party at all, um, because I think for far too long, uh, these different factions of evangelicals and Tea Party people and moderates and, you know, people who are pro-immigration and anti-immigration and libertarians have coexisted. Um, but as 
I think Stanley said the chickens are finally coming home to roost. I, I just I, I don't see it. Um, I actually I see the Republican Party eventually possibly breaking up into two different parties. And yeah. for all I know, that may happen with the Democratic Party, too. Yeah. Um, but I do think eventually we're going to see a new order reemerge. Um, I, I am a strong believer that we will never have anything other than a two party system because of the way the Constitution is written, um, namely the 12th Amendment. Um, and that when one party dies, another party emerges, sort of like what you saw when the Whigs. Whigs um, went the way of or the Federalists. <laughs> yeah, or the fe- Federalists. Um, so I, I do see us having two parties eventually. I don't know how they're going to align or two major parties, um, but. It's going to be very interesting, and I just don't think that the Republican Party can last the way it's it's done for so long. Sorry for laughing <laughs> about the Churchill comments, Lena. Um, I don't, the Republican Party cannot last much longer, and I think the reason being is because they're they're there right next to each other on all the issues, except for the issues that deal with just, in my opinion, deal with being a good human being. So on race, on culture. Those are the things that they're the most adamant about. And I would make an argument that, that you know, establishment Republicans agree with them on those things as well. They just don't think you can get elected into office by being outwardly racist. Because those are really the only big issues. Donald Trump wants to build a wall and deport 11 million people from the country. And he wants an authoritative state where, you know, people of color are getting knocked over the head by cops and it's okay. And he has a problem with, you know, gay and lesbian people or his vice president does. And... Establishment Republicans are like, yeah, sure, but let's have a softer hand with that. And that's that's really what's been the biggest thing from what I've seen. Because other than that, they both want to take away they, they both want to give big tax cuts to the rich so that poor people can get poorer and the rich can get richer. They both want to take away access to affordable health care from working people. They both think that undocumented people are criminals or or that they're all coming here to work in the fields, even though the highest number of undocumented people who overstay their visas are from Canada. So it's either, either the Republican Party is going to get down with this full-blown we are horrible racist or they're going to break apart. Um, Carrie, we do have to wrap this up. I did want to give you 30 seconds to respond and then let us know how we can follow you on social media and also support your platforms. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we're on Bold TV, like you mentioned. I'm at Carrie Sheffield, C-A-R-R-I-E, Sheffield's like the city in England, or the baseball player Gary Sheffield. Um and in terms of the future of the Republican Party, that's something, the future of the country, I don't care what party, it's more about what's being said. Uh, we can shape that future. And I'm so glad to be on this radio show because I think this is how we're going to move ahead is to have a conversation that's bipartisan, that's inclusive, truly inclusive. And I can say as someone who came up like at Harvard, I felt like I couldn't open my mouth. And that's wrong. We live in a country where we should have free speech. And I felt worried that my professors would retaliate. And so a lot of the things that Trump says are true when it comes to the culture, media, et cetera. I think that things have gone way too far because people were so frustrated that now the, the racist Reddit trolls are coming out because they feel liberated. But there's, there's got to be a way to meet in the middle. And I believe that we can build that here as long as we just maintain respect for each other. Thank you again, Carrie. And I just want to say that um, I agree. We do need to meet in the middle. I don't think that Donald Trump as president is helping us do that at all. I think that what we have seen from this fringe is uh, just a new emboldenment, just a new entitlement to be to speak things that are extremely divisive, uh, extremely partisan and are hurtful to a lot of minority groups, those who are disenfranchised and those who already have been uh historically oppressed and marginalized within our country. Um, That's how I feel about Trumpism. And I I think that 
what Trump has doing, it's almost like he is the new normal. And I think that what we need to do, sort of like what Carrie said, is get the dialogue going between these two parts so that we can become the new, new normal. What's happening in from what we see from this White House is something that is completely unprecedented. We've never had a leader this emboldened to say things that are horrible and then taking and then taking those actions to actually implement it. And it's scary right now. But I think that if we continue to stay on top of things, stay informed, stay educated and see if there are some ways we can agree. Like Carrie and I, we've had conversations all the time. Most of the time, a lot of times we don't agree, but then sometimes we do find common ground. And I think that that's important here. On that note, we do have to take another quick break. Don't go anywhere. When we come back, we're talking about Robert Mueller and everything else going on during the News Roundup. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritzheim here with Selena Hill and, of course, the immaculate Alyssa Bloom. Just kidding, <laughs> Alyssa Fuchs. And if you are just tuning in, we finished a great news roundup where we talked about our favorite stories and things that made us laugh, cry, curse, or, in Selena's case, stand up and say it with her chest because she was so frustrated that there Ooh, was... that's sexist. She said it, it with her chest? Yeah, no. Oh, no. That's, that's... not sexist. <laughs> Alyssa's just messing kidding. with you. I'm messing with you. Alyssa gotcha. scared the crap out of me. For real. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Kevin Hart said, say it with your chest when you're being serious about something. <laughs> but Selena was really fired up about the two officers who allegedly sexually assaulted the 18-year-old girl on why she was handcuffed and are trying to say it was consensual because people who are under arrest and in handcuffs can consent to sex with the people that arrested them. Because that makes perfect sense. But anyways... <laughs> I'm sure the law will be very fair about this because we know Justice. that cops are always held accountable when they do things like shoot innocent black people. Oh, wait, she's white. She might get justice. Maybe, because she's a woman, so, you know, it's a toss-up now. White woman. Yep. But anyways, guys, speaking of irregularities when it comes to the justice system, I am here to talk to you about something very interesting. So, any of you, bless you, Selena. Bless you again. See? I'm psychic. You got him to say bless you. That's right. Oh, thank you. I'm going to turn to a pillow of salt. So, guys... If you're like me and you were born in the late 80s and you grew up in the 90s and you grew up in particular neighborhoods, you probably remember days when you would walk down your block and you would see crack files all over the floor. We were in the crack era. That's what it was. And one of the ways that they dealt with the growing number of people addicted to crack in the community and the growing number of people selling crack in the community was to throw them in jail for multiple years. Lock them up? Lock them up. That's exactly how they did it. And because of that entire generations of people have missed out on raising their families, starting one, starting businesses, and being productive members of society. And the reason we did this was because we felt that there was a crack epidemic and we had to be tough on crime because that was the only way to solve that problem. That's not why we did it. You know that. Blackity black black. Fast forward to 2017 and we currently are sitting at the precipice or maybe we are past the precipice of another drug crisis. In 2016, 59,000 people alone died from heroin overdose. And during the 2016 presidential election campaign, every presidential candidate on the Democratic and Republican side were going to places where people kept saying, what are you going to do about heroin addiction in our communities? People had some serious opioid addictions, whether it was prescription pills or actually heroin itself. And every presidential candidate said they were going to do something. And then Donald Trump was elected president. And after promising to make a state of emergency or to do something to support these people that voted for him to directly address this issue, 
Donald Trump finally on Thursday did something. That's right. On Thursday, Donald Trump directed the Department of Health and Human Services to declare the opioid crisis as a public health emergency. So this is pretty much a long anticipated thing that he said he would do. He's been promising to do this since he first got elected into office. He was supposed to do something back in June, but then for some reason he changed his mind or he just did not do it. And to deal with this crisis, he is not actually going to put money for this. What he's saying is they don't need money. He says to fight the epidemic, the government is going to produce really tough, really big, really great advertising aimed at persuading Americans not to start using opioids in the first place. And like when they asked him what that meant, he said, this is pretty much an idea I had where we can teach young people to not take drugs. It's really, really easy not to take them. He then shared a story of his brother, Fred, who was an alcoholic and always told him not to drink alcohol. So Trump didn't drink alcohol. So far, that is his plan to deal with the opioid crisis. And we all know I dislike Donald Trump and I can't wait till he's impeached and hopefully Mike Pence follows him and our Republican Party fails and crashes into smolders. But I'm not even being mean. This is literally what he said <laughs> verbatim, according to the New York Times. So you can go and check me if you don't believe it. But we all know that when they did those tough on crime ads back in the late 80s and the early 90s, they weren't super effective because the problem was that even though you could discourage a few people from trying out drugs people are really curious and they want to try things sometimes you know i saw all those tough on crime drug on um, drug commercials and i saw some of them high so not super <laughs> effective nancy reagan and but we do know there are some other real solutions to addressing this problem but while donald trump is doing this we are in a situation where we don't know there's going to be actually real funding to help this problem. And then we have another sector of people, Stanley, who are upset or feel slighted because when the black community was in the same kind of throes of addiction, this was not the response that they received. So now in this conversation today, we're going to be talking about the opioid epidemic, how, how we've been impacted by it personally, what policies we think needs to happen, what we think Trump will do, and why the, the sympathy and the empathy was not there in the 80s and 90s. And just to start it off, I want to throw it to my friend. Alyssa because as someone who you know works in the legal system like how how have you seen the opioid crisis come to play in the justice system so far I mean honestly if that's a hard question to ask you know like my perception is like it's a little different because when I'm dealing with the legal system here in New York um, you know you're seeing not the kind of thing that you're seeing in places like these small towns on Long Island where you can really see the crisis in full frontal view. Here um, in New York City, we already have a lot of drug arrests. So like sort of those drug arrests are being tied up, um, you know, like and, and so you're not really seeing it so much. I mean, I think. If you go to Staten Island um, and you go, you'll see it a lot more. Um, and that's not because it's not happening here. Actually, there's a huge drug crisis in the Bronx. But because of the way Broken Windows has played out in keeping so many black and brown people in the justice system, period, um, those people are already sort of in the justice system. If you go to Staten Island, you're obviously seeing a lot more people that are coming through the doors of the justice system that were not before. Obviously, because as you know and you mentioned, um, this crisis has now spread to white America. Um, but I just wanted to go back to you know some things that you said in your intro Stanley because I was laughing of course not at the opioid crisis itself it's it's clearly not funny um what I'm laughing at is just how disconnected Donald Trump is about what's going on I mean number one he declares it an emergency so he's all talk but no action he's not putting any money where the mouth is what this needs is money not just talk number two um they there he's gutting the ACA the ACA had a huge expansion for mental health and drug abuse uh, drug abuse and treatment services um that people really need because the real way to solve this drug problem um is 
through rehabilitation and obviously not through punitive measures, which is why it's so, you know, the, the, the racist element of it that, you know, we look back on from the 80s is so prevalent. Um, you know, number three, this is not a new idea Donald Trump came up with. This is Nancy Reagan's Just Say No from the 80s, which, guys... Hello, N- didn't work. More people started taking drugs. And number, you know, this does not like look at the role that the pharmaceutical company has played mm. in the opioid crisis Ooh. at all. Hold um, on, hold like, on, hold he's on. so disconnected. Hold on, calm down, beloved. You over here driving too many. We're gonna have to wait on a couple <laughs> of these. People not to do drugs doesn't ever, and it doesn't make them not to drugs. Like drug addiction is a disease, guys. It's it's a, a medical condition. Um, like, it's just so perplexing because Donald Trump is so out of touch. I'm about to give you a bow tie and a bean pie. Selena, what did you think about Donald Trump's announcement? I, I mean, I, Alyssa said it best. I think it's completely disconnected. And honestly, it, it's hard to phantom how the people surrounding him let him go out and say things like that. Like, don't they give him well-written statements so that he can say things that actually make sense? Obviously not. But uh, Alyssa... The babysitter. Somebody <laughs> needs to call the babysitter. No, no, no. It's, it's a, well, so first of all, like, like when he's saying the things like, okay, we're going to do the Just Say No campaign, I will say, like, Stanley, I wanted to just touch upon this. It did work for me. I was one of the few. I still remember... We found one. I still remember that commercial where they said... Drugs make you mean to everybody like a monster. And then I remember the this is your brain on eggs commercial. Like, seriously, when I see people who may look like they are on high, I think of that monster commercial. So it, it did work for me. But that's 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 far beyond Smoking the point. Smoking like playing hockey with no padding. <laughs> it's fun at first. Well, and then you get hit. Smoking weed is awesome. But, but here's the thing, like. What are we doing for the people who are already hooked on prescription painkillers and those who have serious uh, injuries or illness and who need some type of uh, some type of painkiller, but they're getting addicted to it? So I think that like, okay, if they don't want the younger generation like children to ever get addicted, that's one thing. But we need to talk about the people who are already affected. That's number one. Like and number two, I think that and I think Stanley touched upon this as well we're talking about trying to help these people who have this disease but he's also in the same in the same breath trying to slash medicaid and we know that medicaid would be one of the biggest proponents to actually prevent this from continuing to spread and continuing to uh, uh to be a crisis across the country so i think that a lot of things what he's saying really doesn't make sense and it won't help or really solve the problem that we have Guys, if you're listening to this and you want to jump into the conversation about the opioid opioid crisis in the United States, give us a call at 212-650-6903. Again, that is 212-650-6903. If you're on Facebook Live, please talk to us. Check us. Alyssa, I know you had had a comment to make. I want to let Selena cut in really quickly, then throw it to her. And I just wanted to add, we talked about marijuana and well, it's cannabis. Rich. And the thing is, cannabis has been proven, as studies show, to help people who are suffering from psychophysical injuries or disease, and it's much less harmful and addictive than opioids. So if he really wants to stop the opioid crisis, maybe a feasible solution would be legalizing at least medical uh, marijuana in every single state so that people can turn to this herb, this natural remedy, herb. excuse me, herb, <laughs> this natural remedy, it's rather than earth. turning to uh, the opioids. Well, I mean, this is part of the problem. We have 
spent so much time, so long demonizing all drugs and not recognizing that some drugs are terribly, terribly dangerous, right. um, while other drugs are not, and that maybe if people had access legally, um, you know, but we've demonized marijuana as being a gateway drug, which it is not. And just to note, um, Heroin, opioids, those are all drugs that are legal in the United States. Those are all drugs that are considered to be Schedule 2 and Schedule 3. Marijuana is considered to be a Schedule 1 drug, meaning a dangerous drug with no medical properties. Um, but, like, that's that's sort of an aside. So part of the issue is that um, and the demonization of drugs. But part of the other thing is, going back to something that I've mentioned all the time, everything is related to everything else. When people are in poverty, when they are suffering in despair, when they can't get a job, when their life is going to hell when they think everything is going wrong um, and when they already are prone to have an addictive personality they are going to get hooked on drugs and so when we are talking about like places like where people are Donald Trump voters um, you know these are people that are living in some cases in destitution and I recognize they still have an amount of white privilege that's like a whole separate conversation so I, but I wanted to mention it so I don't discount it um, but you know like you have to deal with issues of poverty you have to deal with issues of um, you know, building infrastructure and getting the country working and, you know, all these other things, um, because those are things that will help to reduce this crisis. You have to deal with public health issues and providing people with good health insurance, um, you know, like universal health care. Like there's so many other issues that are interrelated and interplay with the drug epidemic that have to be addressed. You can't just necessarily address this issue of like, oh, people are doing drugs. You have to look at the underlying reasons why people are doing drugs and address those if you really want to address the problem. So guys, if you're tuning in, you can give us a call at 212-650-6903. Again, that is 212-650-6903. Or you can tweet us at BeHerd underscore radio. If you're on Facebook Live, we want to read your comments as well. So guys, during the initial war on drugs, for the people that were selling the drugs, what they usually did was imprison them and give them some serious jail time. We know that's not going to happen now because most of these heroin dealers are white. We also know it doesn't work. So, like, if they're not going after them, what are the chances that they go after the pharmaceuticals? Because what these pharmaceuticals have been doing is literally throwing parties, inviting doctors over there, and offering them gifts and prizes if they sell more of these prescription pills. And because of the health insurance industry, people, and that's also another reason that people of color haven't had as much access to it, they'll, they'll, just, they'll recommend to people with ailments to just get a bunch of painkillers and pay for it with their insurance. And actually, there was a there was a, a scandal happening where a pharmaceutical company was trying to send over, I think, 50 million tablets of pills to a town of Virginia that only had 73,000 people. And Justice Department tried to stop it, and it was forced to let that that still continue because of some meddling from pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies. Alyssa, right? I mean, listen, the the role that pharmaceutical companies play in this crisis cannot be understated. Um, a lot of people. Not everybody, but a lot of people who are currently addicted to heroin are addicted to heroin because they got in a car accident or they had a sports injury, um, you know, or some kind of injury. They were over-medicated, um, you know, because the, the pharmaceutical companies were pushing these pills on doctors. The doctors were then over-prescribing these pills. These people were getting over-medicated. Um, you know, they had doctors writing them prescriptions for 60 and 90 Percocets, um, you know, f for when they should have been given a two-week supply and then weaned 
off of it. So people got addicted to the pills based on a legitimate reason in some circumstances. And then when the pills got too expensive, they realized that the heroin was cheaper. So they went to the black market and they started buying heroin. And then we started seeing an influx of fentanyl. And in some cases, a worse drug called carfentanil, which is actually an animal tranquilizer, which a snowflake size amount will kill you if you touch it with your skin. Actually, two police officers out of state almost died because when they did this raid and they they touched a piece of paper that had a little bit of this drug on it and they both almost overdosed over it. So this cheap supply of drugs coming in from other places um, and and the over-prescribing and the pushing of pills by pharmaceutical companies um, instead of safer alternatives like marijuana or like non-opioid painkillers. You know, so these drugs were cheap. They were pushed. People got addicted to them. They could no longer afford the medications. They went to heroin and boom, now we see this huge crisis. Uh, We got a comment uh, from a friend of mine. I'm going to read it right now. His name is Eugene Strapinski. um, And he posted some statistics from us from a guy named Ian Bremer. Um, The number, uh, the peak amount of gun deaths was in 1993. That was 40,000. During the peak of the HIV AIDS crisis in 1995, we had 43,000 deaths. Um, Car crashes during their peak in 1972 before seatbelts was 55,000 deaths. During the Vietnam War, from 1955 to 1975, we lost 58,000 service members. In 2016, there were 64,000 drug overdoses. Selena? I mean, that just really puts things into perspective here about what is going on. And I'm glad that Alyssa did make uh, give that breakdown. I know that we do have to go on a quick break, but keep those comments coming on our Facebook Live. And you can call us up at 212-650-6903. We'll be right back. Yo, check out this. Miley Perkinsis, Perkinsis, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz. I'm here with Selena Hill and, of course, the immaculate snap back face back with Alyssa Fuchs. And this is a conversation we are having right now about the opioid crisis and heroin addiction in America. As you may know, in 2016, 59,000 people died of heroin addiction. And earlier this week, actually Thursday, Donald Trump announced that we are going to make on the opioid crisis, a public health emergency, but just not put any money behind it to actually do real work to address it. So now I want to kind of shift the conversation a little bit and really start talking about some hardcore things that we could actually do to address this crisis. And I want to throw it to you first, Selena. Absolutely, guys. And again, if you're listening, feel free to chime in. If you know somebody who's addicted to opioids, and maybe you have been, the number is 212-650-6903. So yeah, so in the beginning of the segment, uh, I mentioned how it's important for us to continue to fund Medicaid, something that the president wants to slash. But there's a particular uh, like policy within Medicaid. Um, it's called MID exclusion. And what that means is that people on Medicaid cannot get substance abuse treatment at facilities with more than 16 beds. So if the president was actually serious about treating people who are suffering from opioid addiction, what we could do is we could start making uh, uh, allocating funds from Medicaid to treat people at large institutions for mental disease. That's something that is simple. That is something that takes uh, Congress coming together, presenting a bill and passing it and letting the president sign on the dotted line. 
Alyssa, what are you? What are the chances of you think that happening? Uh, small to none. But but I mean, aren't but this is a bipartisan issue. I and mean, everybody yeah, in is, Congress. But, look, but they want to cut Medicaid. How do you expect them to fund Medicaid when they're trying to cut Medicaid Alyssa, right now? Alyssa, before you go on an awesome rant, I want to just cut you off to fill that what you just said with some facts. So nearly eighty percent of people experiencing opioid dependence do not receive treatment because of limited treatment capacity or financial obstacles, along with the social stigmas. Other barriers are access to affordable health care and most people particularly people of color or people in rural areas just do not have access to um rehab and healthcare facilities that address these actual issues so one of the things that we could actually do was we invest money into into facilities that actually address the issue um what are the things that people have been using a lot now are methadone clinics because they give the same kind of heroin feeling but it helps to wean you off of the heroin without having you go through the um i forgot what they call it the, the withdrawal phase. So that's something that's been very popular and it's something that's been proven to be effective. But there's not a lot of funding and there's a lot of different policies blocking it from being expanded to other places. Right. And actually, you know, there's even better there's even better stuff um, that can be done uh, other than methadone. I mean, Suboxone has been a, a big thing. Suboxone is basically a drug that um, makes it so that if you take heroin, it doesn't give you the effects that heroin gives you, and eventually it makes you not want to take it anymore. Um, you know, But none of that matters if there's no funding for it. And so getting back to what I was saying that Stanley was filling the facts on, you know, Donald Trump said that he would act to suspend a rule that currently prevents Medicaid from funding many drug rehabilita- rehabilitation facilities. Okay, that's great. Um, but what difference does that make if you're not going to fund Medicaid? If you want to make Medicaid into a block grant that you're going to give to the states, um, you know, and totally gut it. And if you want to roll back the Medicaid expansion that Obamacare gave by repealing Obamacare, it's like, you know, you, it, it doesn't make sense, right? Those two things can't go together. If people don't have the Medicaid funds to be able to go to a drug rehabilitation rehabilitation facility, then what does it matter if they can now spend their Medicaid at the rehabilitation facility when they now don't have the Medicaid? You know, it's like a giant catch-22. It doesn't work. Selena? No, no, I I absolutely agree with what Alyssa is saying because, you know, the thing is with Donald Trump, he says things, he says these things to rile up his base, and obviously his base are one of the primary uh, uh, people, uh, primary uh, groups of Americans suffering from this crisis. And it sounds good, but I think that if they just digged a little deeper and saw what action he was taking, maybe they would realize that, hey, this president isn't really for me, and he's taking actions that are clearly going to hurt me and the people in my community. So, I mean, and the thing is, like, a lot of people, uh, especially those who voted for Trump, directly benefited from uh, the Affordable Care Act, too. So it's like it's almost preposterous to think, like, how he can say one thing and then do something that so directly uh, and distinctly is contradictory and also hurts the same people that he calls his base. So and anyone can answer this question, but I'm leaning towards Alyssa. I'm not going to lie to you guys. During the war on drugs, they started to go after the cartels. Granted, it's the same cartels that they funded and helped get the drugs to the United States. They started to go after them. So in this case, it seems like the pharmaceutical companies will be the cartels. I mean, what? yeah, but you still also have cartel, actual cartel activity. It's sort of like a dual problem because yeah. the pharmaceutical companies are the way people get hooked on it. But then once people are hooked and they go to the heroin or the fentanyl, we're seeing a lot of fentanyl coming in actually from China. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you're seeing a lot of heroin also come in uh, through the southern border. So, you know, there are definitely issues in terms of, you know, uh, attacking drug trafficking. But when it comes to drug users, we obviously have to treat that as a public health crisis. We can no longer continue to 
treat it as a law and order issue because locking people up is never the way to get them off drugs. It has never worked. Um, you know, and, and, and just to get back to something that Selena was saying, there was this great quote from uh, Senator Ed Markey, of, uh, Democrat from Massachusetts, um, that he said in response to what Trump said, and it was really great. I wanted to read it to you because it's not that long. He said, quote, America is hemorrhaging lives by the day because of the opioid epidemic, but President Trump offered the country a Band-Aid when we need a tourniquet. Instead of... Co- of a commitment to emergency funds for our states and communities, President Trump offered empty words and half measures. He's absolutely right. That is exactly what it is. Absolutely. I agree there. And, and I wanted to just bring something up. You know, a lot of times when we talk about the opioid crisis, Stanley brings up the fact that, uh, and you brought it up again today, the fact that when uh, majority black people were, are suf- were suffering from the crack epidemic or uh, heroin crisis back in the 70s, we didn't see that the same type of attention and Instead, we saw our our, uh, elected officials and leaders actually demonizing these people and saying that we needed to lock them up. And we're taking a completely different stance here, which is which is a good thing. It's but it's still very disheartening. And it just still just shows the layers of racism that exist in our country. But the question I want to talk about is because the opioid crisis does sort of feel like and seem like a predominantly uh, a crisis that only affects white America. Mm -hmm. But then during commercial break, you played Mask Off by Future and he's talking about Pop and Molly and Pop and Percocets. And we also know that uh, Prince, who died in 2016, he died from uh, overdose on Percocets, or at least we know that he was addicted to Percocets. So do we see a cultural shift here happening that we also need to be alarmed about? So I, I think that drug culture is definitely a thing that's growing in hip-hop. And, um, yeah, Mask Off is about taking an upper and a downer at the same time. So Molly's the upper, Percocet is a downer. So and what kind of effect does that have? So, like, Molly, like, amps you up, energizes you, dehydrates you also, and, like, kind of, like, enhances senses. And then the Percocet just kind of, like, slows you down as a painkiller. You know, it's, it has the effects of the opioid, of, a, of, of a heroin. So that's what Future is talking about, doing a drug culture is definitely growing. I think that... um. Heroin addiction is still an issue in communities of color, and it's something that we're not looking at. So when we're looking at solutions, we have to make sure we're including, you know, heroin addiction and how to deal with communities of color who have historically lacked the access to get the help that they need. Alyssa? Right. I mean, listen, there, um, just to to add to that, which is um, another thing that gets quite overlooked is the use of lean cough syrup right it's an opioid um when people are talking about sipping on syrup and that's like a big part of rap culture what they're talking about is doing opioid drugs i mean from what codeine yeah codeine is an opioid i mean from what i understand um little wayne you know has has, has has a problem with um with the drug addiction um and yeah i think that it has been overlooked recently. Um, I mean, not surprisingly, in the black community, there was a really good feature article uh, in the New York Times last week um, called The Bronx's Quiet, Brutal War with Opioids. And it basically says that in the Bronx, um, the Bronx lost more residents to drug overdoses last year than any other borough in the city of New York. Um, more people died in the Bronx and mostly people of color due to the heroin epidemic than in Staten Island, where you know that they have a big problem with heroin um, amongst white people. So um, I do think that uh, it's sort of because so many um, white people in the suburbs um, and in rural areas are dying because of heroin overdoses, that it, the fact that heroin over, uh, sorry, heroin and opioid abuse within um, communities of color is a big issue is getting overlooked. 
No, and I definitely would agree there. And guys, if you are uh, following us on Twitter, you can send us your tweets at beheard underscore radio. You can also call us up at 212-650-6903. So we're coming to the tail end of this, and I want to ask you guys, what do you want to see happen in the next three to six months from this administration to really address this? Alyssa? Um, I want to see them fund it. Um, I want to see them fund it because at the end of the day, you can't pay for all these rehabilitation facilities if you don't fund this. Um, and, you know, that's that's what it needs. You can't just call something a crisis and then not put the put the money where the mouth is. Um, they need to back it up. Um, but I just before I go, there's one thing I wanted to add about what people can personally do, um, which is anybody can get a, uh, a, nal- a naloxone, um, which is or also called Narcan. Um, it is a nasal spray. You can get it um, at CVS. You can go in. You can say you want to um, get a naloxone. I, it used to be harder. You had to go to a training class. Um, but now that it's so easy because you just spray it in somebody's nose, um, I believe anybody can walk in and get one. Get one. Carry one. You can save a life. If you see somebody overdosing and you're carrying Narcan, you can administrate it and you can save their life. Anybody can do that. It's very easy. Um, You know, it's a simple thing. And it's obviously it's not a solution to the whole crisis and epidemic. But it's something that you as an individual can do uh, to maybe save somebody's life. And you know what? I'm so glad that Alyssa ended by uh, giving us advice on what we can all do as individual citizens here because I have no faith in this administration and uh, even even taking on a problem that speaks directly to his base I mean his approach is laughable like we were literally laughing at those direct quotes and how he responded to this and I think that there are so many things that he could do that are bipartisan but he's refusing to do and it, it's it's just baffling at this point I mean it seems like the another thing that we can do as individuals is something that we constantly tell our listeners here and let your voice be heard. Don't give up on emailing, calling, and petitioning our, our elected officials and tell them do not gut the Affordable Care Act, keep funding Medicaid, and we need to really move legislatively when it comes to cannabis, at least medical marijuana, at the very least, because this is a very safe, it's, a, it's much, much less dangerous uh, to prescribe than to have people get addicted to, to opioids. And I, I don't know what else it's going to take. Like, white America. America is suffering, but they still voted for Trump. So it's like, I, I really want to know what you think the future is here, Stanley. So before we can talk about the future, we have to talk about the present. And presently, there are people right now in Youngstown, Ohio, in a town that used to be thriving with business and, and workers and working class people and families. And their houses are falling apart. People can't afford to get by at all every single day. There's no more stable infrastructure. And what people do for fun there is they get drunk, they set tires on fire, and they do heroin. Those are communities of people who they are in major states where they have just been forgotten. When it's time to get funding to people, it does not come to Youngstown. When it's time to go speak to communities, the politicians do not come. But Trump did. When it's time to talk about their problems, no one cares. But Trump said he cared. 
And those are the people right now who are suffering from the heroin epidemic. And I don't say that to you so that you can feel sorry for these white people in this town. I'm saying it to you because the people of Youngstown have a lot in common with the people of East New York, with the people of the South Bronx, with the people of Troy, with the people of Mississippi, with the people of Florida. And that's poverty. And when you put people in in environments where it's deep poverty and no hope and no support and no one listening and no one trying to help you, what do you expect them to do but go towards vices? And if we really want to help our people out, our people of Youngstown, of Troy, of Connecticut, of Westchester, then we absolutely have to take a serious approach to this heroin epidemic with real funding. And then we have to fund our people with jobs, with opportunity, with reinvestment, with hope. And until we do that, we will always be comfortably numb to what's happening in this economy and to American people. We'll be right back after this quick break. It'll be the quickie. Hello. And we are back. That was Pink Floyd, Comfortably Numb, um, appropriate song for our last topic. Anyways, um, you know, it's probably an appropriate song for our next topic because, you know, by the end of this budget, I'm going to be want to be numb. <laughs> Alyssa! <laughs> but I'm not, I'm I'll not be gonna, numb with you. I'm not, I'm going to not do that usually by doing um, opioids. Uh, we might have to have a few drinks, though. <laughs> I'm with it. Keep it legal. Anyways, um, so uh, House members voted to approve a budget blueprint that would allow a tax bill to pass Congress without any Democratic votes. Because, you know, why get the Democrats involved in anything um, when you can just do it yourself? You know, isn't that the thing that they complained the Democrats did with Obamacare, which is why they were so mad? You know, I don't know. The hypocrisy never ceases to amaze me. Anyway, Senate leaders are signaling that the bill could be introduced, debated and approved by the end of November because nothing like rushing a piece of legislation along, which side note um, is something I wanted to say during the first segment. John McCain didn't vote against the Obamacare bill uh, because he was necessarily against the bill. He voted against it because he was against the pace at which the repeal was going and the fact that it was not being open to public comment and debate. But anyways, I digress. The Senate has a a very narrow path to try and pass this tax overhaul, um, even under special rules that allow for passage in the Senate by a simple majority. Republicans can only afford to lose two votes. Um, sounds like Obamacare repeal, doesn't it, guys? It really does. Um, the budget measure approved on Thursday would allow for a tax bill that adds as much as $1.5 trillion to the federal deficit over the next decade at a time when the federal government's debt has already topped $20 trillion. Um, but, of course, Republicans don't care about deficits when, you know, the black guy's not in office anymore. Um, and the deficit for the 2017 fiscal year, which ended September 30th, totaled $666 billion. I love oh, that. Oh, wait, <laughs> seriously? Yeah. <laughs> $666 billion, which was an increase of $80 billion from the previous year. Um, and the outline of this tax plan that was unveiled in September would cut the corporate tax rate from 20 percent, I'm sorry, to 20 percent from 35 percent. It would collapse the individual income tax bracket from seven to three or four, which tax rate tax rates of 12 percent, 25 percent and 35 percent and possibly one even higher. Um, and it would nearly double the standard deduction to twelve thousand dollars for individuals and twenty four thousand dollars uh, for married couples filing jointly or, you know, according to Steve Cohn, if you're a middle class family that makes over $100,000, you'll see $1,000 extra. And of course, according to uh, Donald Trump's right hand man who works for Goldman Sachs or used to, he thinks that $1,000 will allow you to buy a new car um, or renovate your entire home or take a vacation because, you know, he's totally in touch with the reality of middle class people. Uh, but again, I digress. So this budget vote has become... Um, 
Another place where competing factions of the Republican Party are now on display, which is something I mentioned during the first segment, um, with 20 Republicans defecting uh, and the resolution only passing narrowly uh, 216 yes votes to 212 no votes, in part over concerns of possible eliminations of a tax break that would disproportionately benefit residents of high tax states. Uh, So that means that, you know, us who live in New York, because we pay high taxes, we get to take this SALT deduction um, based on our... Our local taxes being high, they want to do away with that. So, of course, Republican senators from um, or I'm sorry, Republican House members from New York and New Jersey, they were against this bill because it would see their constituents tax bills actually go up because they would no longer be able to take this deduction. Um, So another big thing, another core dilemma is how to pay for these tax cuts, because you have the deficit hawks that are going, wait, 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 wait. We just complained about the deficit and the debt for the past eight years under Obama. And now you guys want to do tax cuts? Well, how are they going to get paid for? Uh, Republican leaders say that the tax cuts will spur economic growth, and that's how they're going to get paid for, um, because it would offset $1.5 trillion in lost revenue. Um, But the hawks in the party are really skeptical about this, um, because for years they were railing about, you know, President Obama and these deficits and the fact that they're not offset. Um, You also has, as I mentioned, the SALT deduction um, and how that would play in. And another issue is the new income levels. Uh, How are they going to set these rates. They're saying 12, 25, 35, um, but we don't know exactly where they're going to draw the lines. And so that's going to be another contentious issue. Um, And that is going to have a direct effect on how much taxes you make or, you know, how much rich people don't have to pay, because that's really who's benefiting for that this Uh, after all. Um, Then there's the issue about the 401k. One of the ways they wanted to pay for this is by changing the way in which you can um, put money into your 401k and capping the amount of money um, from $18,000 in tax-free money that you could put into your 401k down to $2,400. Trump, of course, rejected this idea and tweeted there would be no changes to the 401k. But then he undercut the Republican senators who were using this as a way that they thought it was going to be done. So then there becomes this question of if the bill includes this change to the 401k, is Trump going to sign it? Honestly, I think he probably will because, you know, he's a con man. You can't believe anything that comes out of his mouth. Um, Well, why is this all happening so fast? Party leaders are vowing to push ahead at an even faster pace than they previously had outlined um, because they want to introduce this bill on November 1st and amend it by November 6th and then pass it right away. And they want to do this so that they can maximize party cohesion and neutralize attacks by Democrats and business groups. Um, If Republicans stick to their plan, they will speed what would be a thousand piece, uh, sorry, a thousand page piece of legislation that affects every single corner and every segment of the United States economy through the House and Senate in less than three weeks, Ooh. which is the exact thing that McCain was voting against when he voted against the ACA, which I just mentioned before. Um, more importantly, they need to do this under the so-called reconciliation rules to avoid a Democratic filibuster. Um, so if they do this quickly, then instead of them needing 60 votes to end the filibuster, they will be able to approve this budget resolution with only 50 percent and pass a bill without any Democratic votes. All of the Democrats voted against this budget resolution because they're like, how are we going to pay for these tax cuts? You guys did this under George W. Bush and it didn't work. You guys just did this in Kansas and it didn't work. Um, This doesn't work. Supply this supply side trickle down doesn't work. Um, So what's next? 
The Democrats were, of course, swift to criticize this approach, saying it was an attempt to hide tax changes that were hurt, not help middle class families. Um, Nancy Pelosi said the package, which would lower the corporate tax rate from 35 percent to 20 percent, is little more than the trickle down economics of the past that shake down the middle class and rip off the middle class. I agree with her. Um, lawmakers and committee members still have to resolve some of these thorny issues um, about where to set these brackets and how to shift money. And there's going to be a question about whether or not they can even get their own 50 percent, as we saw with the collapse of the Obamacare repeal. And the biggest question is going to be how to offset enough tax revenue that will be lost through the cutting of taxes. Um, the silver lining is the one thing that was not included in this bill was Obamacare. Obamacare is completely out of the bill. Uh, so the budget bill, in some ways, is a formal concession that the party, the Republican Party, cannot get the votes to get rid of Obamacare um, and that they do not have the time or the energy to make good on their promise um, because they're concerned they're going to lose control of the House or the Senate or both after the November elections in 2018. Um, so it's going to be really interesting. And the, the, the I'll, I'll close by saying this, two things. Number one, I really wanted to come here today and tell you about how this would affect you. But since there's still so many things up in the air, it's really hard to tell. That said, from what I can tell from this blueprint, if you're a middle class person, it's really not going to affect you that much. And this is only going to affect you if you make like over $250,000 a year. So, you know, the people who voted for Trump, who thought they were going to get a big tax break, you know, who are middle class or poor people got conned. Um, and the last thing I'll end on is what can you do? As Selena said at the end of the last segment, stay on your senators, stay on your congresspeople, especially if you live in a red state, especially if you are a Republican who's never Trump, who's a moderate, who does not believe in this, especially if you live in Kansas and you saw how the, this didn't work. You know, Democrats, of course, your politicians want to hear from you. But at the end of the day, the Republicans need to hear from other Republicans to say, you're conning me. This isn't working. This isn't what I'm looking for. This isn't going to affect me. This is only going to affect rich people. This isn't what I voted for. So keep those phone lines ringing, the Capitol switchboard, keep it lighting it up. Selena? Uh, thank you so much for that, Alyssa. And thank you guys for hanging out with us here and let your voice be heard. We wrapped up another great show. And I think that I, it basically tells us and shows us this. These crises in America, they continue. But it's time for us to fight back with our voices, with our votes, and with our power, the power of the people. So thank you so much for tuning in to Let Your Voice Be Heard, guys. If you want to share this so that we can continue to inform, educate, and empower others, subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And I also iHeartRadio. Thank you, Stanley. And also fund us with your dollars so that you can keep us, an independent media outlet, alive. And you can do that by subscribing to us on Patreon and also going to our GoFundMe account as well. All right, guys, happy Sunday. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. We'll be back here next Sunday, God willing, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM. They know I'm on top of the pyramid. They know I'm a golden Guinness. No.